Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, and we continue our studies uh, in the life of Christ. And this morning, uh, the message is entitled, Love Your Enemies. Love Your Enemies. Matthew 5, verses 43 through 48. Here we have come now to the last contrast, the last of the contrasts between the scribes and the Pharisees' teaching and Christ's teaching. And they show the, the difference between the teaching of the world and the teaching of the Word of God. And these contrasts came about because the people thought that Jesus was against the law of Moses and that he was teaching a new religion. But Jesus makes it unmistakably clear that he was not against the law of Moses. He said in Matthew five seventeen, I didn't come to destroy the law or the prophets, but to fulfill the law. Now, in these contrasts, he shows that it was the religious leaders who in that day were opposed to the law of Moses. They were the ones who taught a distorted doctrine compared to Moses' law, and Jesus corrects their doctrine, and he shows what should be taught instead. So these contrasts are emphasized in the text with the opening words of each contrast, starting with, Jesus said, you have heard. Then he says something that, he says, but then I say to you. Now, I know what you've heard, he says, but let me tell you what it really means. Let me tell you what's right. What the people heard from the religious leaders was a whole lot different than, but I say to you. It was a clear difference in teaching between what Jesus taught and the religious leaders taught. But Jesus is always a strong contrast compared to the world. His doctrine and his commands are way different than what the world says. And wise men will pay a lot more attention to and put more weight in what Jesus says than what the world says. So this last uh, contrast is about malice. It's about hatred. It's about spite. And it's closely related to the last contrast last week about meekness, which had to do with vengeful behavior that could become hateful. So let's begin now in chapter 5 with verse 43. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, nowhere did the law teach anybody to hate their enemies. You can read from Genesis to Revelation, <clears throat> though it's speaking of the law, but you won't find that anywhere. It teaches the opposite. Exodus 23, 4 and 5 teaches just the opposite. Listen, it says, If you come upon your enemy's ox or donkey that has strayed away, take it back to its owner. If you see that the donkey of someone who hates you has collapsed under its load, do not walk by. Instead, stop and help. You see, since Christian love is an act of the will and not simply an emotion, Jesus has the right to command us to love our enemies. And, and many times, unfortunately, our enemies can be those who are closest to us. But love is not just an emotion. It's not just a feeling. <clears throat> it's an act of obedience. It's something I choose to do in obedience to what God says. And when I find out that I do it because I'm asked to by the Lord, I will find out that he rewards me by giving the feelings. After all, Jesus loved me when I was still his enemy. 
He demonstrated his love for me. While I was yet a sinner, he died for me. So again, Christian love is not, again, something that mostly that I feel. It's not just an emotion. It is an act of the will. Jesus said this. Jesus said, these things I command you that you love one another. Notice he's, he's commanding us to love each other. He says in 1 John 3, 23, and this is his commandment that we should believe, believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. Now, I heard somebody say one time in a marriage counseling appointment, well, you know, if I love that person and I don't feel like it, aren't I being a hypocrite? I said, no, you're being obedient. Being a hypocrite is, is, is loving somebody and, oh, I just love doing, oh, and I'm just having a wonderful time and, you know, they, you know even though they've hurt me. and No. We may not have the feelings, but God says, do it because I've asked you to. It's an act of the will. It's done in obedience to what God has says and, and, and God rewards obedience. Then he will give us the feeling. God doesn't command us to feel like loving which we do when we, when, when we, you know, when we feel we're being treated right and everything's wonderful and my partner's doing all that, you know, or whatever the situation might be. It's easy to love them. But God doesn't command us to feel like loving. What God does, he directs us to think and to speak and to act in a loving manner. It's being obedient. We are to love others in response to his love for me. We love him because he first loved us. You often make a lot of decisions in life that aren't based on your feelings. And we know that for a fact because, if, because tomorrow, if we acted on our feelings, there would be nobody at work. I don't want to go to work tomorrow. But we do. Why? It's the best thing to do. It's good for us. Plus, it helps us when we get our paycheck. And, and I really think of, of, of moms with newborn children. Do you think they feel like getting up at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning to change a, a diaper? To feed that little infant? No, but they do. Why? It's best for the other person. It's, it's what needs to be done for the good of that infant. So we do many things in life that, that aren't, you know, uh, influenced by our feelings. We do it because it's the right thing to do. And that's what God is telling us by loving one another. It's not something I, that I may not feel like doing or feel like doing. It's something that, you know, it's hard for me to do, but I do it in obedience to God. And like I said, then God gives me the feelings. Because God's word commands you to love, it, it requires your obedience. See, God is asking me to behave a certain way. So you know what? It means it's possible I can do that. We may show this love by blessing those who curse us. By doing good to them, by praying for them. <clears throat> we pray for our enemies, or I should say when we pray for our enemies, it makes it easier to love them. You see, it takes the bitterness out of our hearts, out of our attitudes. One of the things that made the evil teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees' doctrine seem to be so accepting is that they usually had some, some truth, they had a little bit of truth mixed in with the untruth. This has always been one of Satan's favorite tricks. 
He likes to mix the good with the bad in order to deceive. And when people look at Satan's doctrine, Satan shows them the good part of the doctrine, but he ignores the bad part that comes with it. False doctrine is often mixed with some good doctrine in order to lure people into accepting it. But once accepted, the poison of the false doctrine will contaminate it. Leviticus 19.18 says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against a fellow Israelite, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. It's interesting, interesting how he says to love your neighbor as yourself. If we did that, we'd love everybody because, oh, we love ourselves a bunch. <laughs> If we love others like the way, we, I mean, we take care of ourselves, we love ourselves, we pamper ourselves, we don't hurt ourselves, we do everything to please ourselves. The Lord said, hey, if you loved your neighbor like you loved yourself, it'd be a much better world. So this first part of the doctrine of the scribes and the Pharisees, it was right to love your neighbor. God did command us to love our neighbors. We need this doctrine as much today as ever. So you see, Jesus doesn't have a problem with this part of the doctrine, love your neighbor. We even find it in Scripture that Jesus repeats this doctrine at time in his teaching. For example, when the rich young ruler came to Jesus and Jesus told him to keep the commandments, the rich, wrong, uh, uh, the rich young ruler asked him, well, which ones? Jesus gave him a few selected ones and Finished with, love your neighbor as yourself. Another time, a lawyer asked Jesus what he had to do to inherit eternal life. Jesus asked him, well, what was written, what, what's written in the law? The man's answer was, or the man's answer included, loving your neighbor as yourself. When Jesus commanded the lawyer, or commended the lawyer, for giving the right answer, the man immediately asked him, well, well who's my neighbor? Then Jesus gave him the parable about the Good Samaritan to show what it meant to love your neighbor and who your neighbor really was. You see, Jesus not only repeated this law of loving your neighbor in his teaching, but he also highly praised it. This is especially seen when Jesus, you know, had a hostile encounter with some of the Pharisees who asked him, you know, what was the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said, well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. You see, this greatly elevated the doctrine of loving your neighbor as yourself. This wasn't uh, then, nor is it now, a command to disrespect and take lightly. Jesus emphasize how important this doctrine was when he said it was one of the one of the two commandments on which hung all the law and the prophets jesus isn't the only one who mentions this doctrine paul and uh, apostle paul and james did uh, did it too in their writings paul mentions it twice once in romans 13 9 and one in galatians 5 14 james mentions it in james chapter 2 verse 8 so this doctrine is definitely a good one Jesus is not against it, nor did he condemn it here. He honors it just as much as Paul and James did. Loving your neighbor as yourself is very important. It's one of the two duties upon which all the law hangs and all the law towards others is fulfilled. Galatians 5.14, Paul said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And we need to honor this command because it is a very, very important command. 
Now, in verse 43, there's two ways in which it's corrupted by the scribes and the Pharisees. First of all, the scribes limited, they narrowed down what the word neighbor meant. And secondly, they lied about that meaning of the word neighbor. First, they limited the word neighbor to mean only those who were friendly towards them. Well, it's easy to love those that are friendly towards you, isn't it? Secondly, they taught the faults and the wicked presumption that they were allowed to hate their enemies. The scribes and the Pharisees would use the same words that Moses used in the law, but they would change their application and the definition of the law quite a bit in order to meet their flesh. What they wanted to do. The Jewish leaders defined the word neighbor to mean friends or those who were closely related to them. To choose other, uh, I mean, to, uh, to, to, uh, to, to choose of their, of their nation and particularly those who belong to their own party. So those who were, you know, in their own little group and, and who they liked and they were related to, that was their neighbor. But that's not how the word neighbor is correctly defined. Listen to Leviticus 19. The meaning of the word is very broad, covering everyone from a lover, a close friend, an acquaintance, an adversary, and an enemy in combat. So the broad nature of the meaning of the word neighbor is seen in several ways. For example, Exodus eleven two, it says when the Israelites were ready, were getting ready to leave Egypt, it says Moses told all the Israelite men and women to ask their Egyptian neighbors for articles of silver and gold. Who were their Egyptian neighbors? Those were their oppressors. Those who were oppressing them. The neighbor in this verse was the hated Egyptians who were their oppressors. Not only that, in Exodus, the law said they were not to covet their neighbor's wife. Which says a Jew wasn't any more at liberty to covet the wife of a heathen than he was a Jew. So the word neighbor was, was inclusive, truly inclusive. Jesus dealt with this whittled down definition when he gave the parable about the Good Samaritan. And this taught the people that the word neighbor included a lot of people that they didn't normally think of as neighbors. The Samaritan wasn't thought of as a neighbor by the Jews. They hated the Samaritans. But the good Samaritan took care of the poor Jew who was beaten and robbed on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho. And what did he do for the Jew who was left beat up on the side of the road? Who he called neighborly what he did was neighborly so neighbor includes a lot more people than the jews wanted to include it included just about everyone we are to love our fellow man as ourselves that's the application jesus made of the law then there's nothing in scripture that says we are to hate our enemy nothing regardless of what that person did This was made up by the religious leaders. They added to this lie, they added this lie to 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 their doctrine. You know, you have you have heard, they said, you have heard uh, hate your enemy. But they added this to the doctrine in order to feed their fleshly desires and to make the people happy. They even went as far as to suggest that it was their business, almost their duty and their right to hate all who they considered not to be their neighbor. 
And of course, the religious leaders, they would somehow justify their lying doctrine. They would allude to the fact, well, you know, God commanded to kill the evil nations that possess Canaan. And, and he said, go to war with the Midianites and to destroy the Malachites. So they figured using those, uh, alluding to those things that, that, hey, we're to hate our neighbor. And they would even use some of the imprecatory Psalms that, that said, hate your enemy. Isn't it something how we can stretch the scriptures to make them fit something that we prefer? And then how we can narrow them down when we don't want to obey them. Well, that doesn't apply to me. So this is how the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees went. They said like this, well, the Jews are required to love and do good to their Jewish brothers. But it was their duty and they were allowed to take pleasure in bitter hatred against the Gentiles. And the reason that this doctrine is is loved is because it agrees so much with our flesh and our fallen nature. It comes so naturally. This practice of the false teachers and the religious leaders in Christ's time is still very popular today because it feeds our flesh and it makes people happy. Now let's look at verse 44. Jesus told him in verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your neighbor. Now Jesus says in verse 44, but I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Notice Jesus now changes hate your enemy to love your enemies or enemies. Jesus couldn't make it any clearer. Jesus tells us to do just the opposite of what the religious leaders had been telling them to do. Based on verse 44, Jesus defined our enemies as those who curse us, those who hate us and and persecute us, that take advantage of us for their own gain. Now, sometimes it's hard to explain what it actually means to love your enemies. And sometimes the way to best explain it is to show it to people. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Many times the best way to explain something is by demonstration. So in order for Jesus to teach what love your enemies meant, he gives us three great illustrations. The first one has to do with the mouth, with things that are said. Notice Jesus said, bless those who curse you. The word bless here comes from the Greek word eulogio, where we get our English word eulogy. So the word bless means well. It means good. It means to speak. It means to bless. Or more accurately, it means to speak well of. It's the opposite of what our flesh says to do. Tell them off. Cuss them out. Tell them what I feel. James tells us in James chapter 3, I mean, there's a whole chapter there spent on the tongues, on the tongue, the things that we say. James tells us that our tongue usually wants to attack the enemy by calling him evil names or lie about him or ruin him. But Jesus says, speak decently when talking about the enemy. Now, this doesn't mean we are to condone the enemy his evil or or praise the enemy for doing evil it means we are to speak truthful truth truthfully 
honorably and not disgustingly or slanderously when talking about our enemy. You know, has anybody ever read the Fox's Book of Martyrs? If you haven't, you should. And it's filled with beautiful illustrations, a true illustrations, examples of people who were martyred for Christ. Here's an example here. The Scottish reformer George, George Wissert, who was sentenced to die as a heretic, because the execution knew about Wissert's selfless ministering to hundreds of people who were dying of the plague, the executioner was hesitant about carrying out the sentence. When Wissert saw the expression of remorse on the executioner's face, he went over and kissed him on the cheek and said, Sir, may that be a token that I forgive you. In other words, we're not to sling mud at our enemies with our words like a lot of politicians do when it comes to elections. The next illustration of loving your enemy Jesus gave had to do with manners. Jesus said, do good to those who hate you. How we talk results in how we act. First, we attack with our words. Then we attack with our actions or our manners. Jesus now talks about how we are to behave toward our enemies. We are to do good to those who hate us. And the Bible gives us some examples of what it means to do good to those who hate you. We saw the example in Exodus chapter 23, verses 4 and 5. And, and then in Romans 12, 20 and 21, Paul said, If your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. Let's say, for example, you have a terrible neighbor. And they're always complaining about something. Maybe outside when you're working in the yard or whatever, you're, you're playing your radio too loud. Maybe the leaves from your tree, they blow over into their yard. The kids are too noisy and they're always complaining about something. And one day, you see that the neighbor's car won't start. The battery's dead. And, and you, 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 you sit and you watch and you, that's what you get. God's paying you back for being such a, a complaining neighbor. But you know what? You don't sit, you don't watch, and you don't gloat. You get your battery cables out, you drive your car over to their driveway, and you help them start their car. We're not to be mean. We're not to be vindictive. We're not to be hateful to those who are mean and hateful to us. Paul said, in doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame upon their heads. He says, so don't let evil get the best of you, but conquer evil by doing good. And you know what? That might just change your neighbor's attitude the next time they want to come over and complain about something. The next example of loving your neighbor is uh, your, 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 your enemy is prayer. Jesus said, pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute, persecute you. And Jesus taught two important lessons here. Now, we all know that this life that we live here is not easy. Secondly, we know that not everybody we run across is going to be nice or friendly to us or gracious. And maybe even more so if they know that you're a Christian. And I think people are becoming less and less friendly and gracious in general overall. The second lesson is the benefit of prayer. He said, pray for them. Praying for them is another way to show our love for our enemies. 
We see a beautiful example of David in Psalm 109, 1 through 5. Listen to what David said. O God, whom I praise, don't stand silent and aloof while the wicked slander me and tells lies about me. They surround me with hateful words and they fight against me for no reason. He says, I love them, but they try to destroy me with accusations even as I am praying for them. They repay evil for good and hatred for my love. He says, even as I'm praying for them, they show their evil and their hatred towards me. They're repaying evil for good and hatred for my love. David responded to the enemy's attacks by praying for the people. Our enemies often frustrate us. And they often try to turn every word and every action into an attack on us. But we can pray for those problem people in our lives. And sometimes it's the only thing that you can do. Because they're just flat out evil. But praying is an effective way to deal with our enemies. And you know what? It will eliminate a lot of frustrations and heated conversations. You have to practice praying for your enemies wherever they might be. You have to, you, you have to pray for all of those who aggravate you if you're going to love your enemies. Now, this is how we should also test ourselves. Do you pray for people who persecute you and spitefully use you? Do you ask God to have mercy on them, to pity them, and not to punish them? Do you pray for God to save them and for God to open their eyes before it's too late? Because you see, that's the very reason why Jesus came to this earth and eventually died on the cross, for them to be saved. Jesus was so concerned about us that he didn't even think about himself. That's the way we're to treat people. Verse 45 and 46. Jesus said, he said the reason that you're to you know, bless those who curse you and do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven for he makes his sun shine on the evil and on the good and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do, you not, even, do, you, do not even the tax collectors do the same? Here in these two verses, Jesus gives two more important things that happen when you love your enemies. First of all, he says that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Now, don't, don't confuse this with salvation. This isn't about salvation here when Jesus says you may be the sons of your Father in heaven. Again, this isn't about how a person becomes a child of God. Jesus is not talking about becoming children of God or getting saved, but being like the children of God. This is evidence of a relationship with God. And and listen carefully. It's easy to say, I love you. The truth comes in showing it. And that's what Jesus is saying here. If you do these things that I'm saying, it's so that you may be sons of your fathers in heaven. You're showing evidence that you truly are a child of God. This is evidence of a relationship with God. 
Basically, as the last part of the verse indicates, it's showing behavior that, that, that is like God. God is compassionate to his enemies. The same way that the sun shines on the unjust and the just, and it rains on the just and the unjust. The same sun that melts the wax is the same sun that hardens the clay. So God's own children are to behave the same way. That is compassionate in the way they behave towards their enemies every single day. When you reflect God's behavior, you are showing that you really have a relationship with him. So this result of loving your enemies by the way you speak and by the way you behave towards them and by praying for them is evidence that confirms your relationship to God. You're acting like a Christian. Not like a, an earthling. You're behaving in the spirit and not in the flesh. Then, as a result of your heavenly father, uh, your fatherly compassion, there is a reward. Verse 46 says, For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? There's a reward. If you live like the world, which is meant by the tax collectors, you know, if you, if you love uh, those who love you, you know, you're not any different than the tax collectors. You're not any different than the world because they do the same thing. Because if you love only those who love you, what are you doing more than others? What are you doing different than the world? The inference here is that you should be doing more than the world. You should be behaving different than the world. You should be different. Why? I'm a Christian. Or at least I claim to be. Jesus includes in the correction of his teaching this challenge to the Christian, which is the Christian must live a superior life to the unbelievers. Jesus said earlier in Matthew 5, 20, for I say to you that unless, notice, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, there's no way you'll enter the kingdom of heaven. We have to live above our feelings and our emotions or we will never get into the kingdom of God. Jesus is unmistakably saying that the Christian's behavior is to be more righteous than the unbeliever. And when Jesus said, what do you do more than others? He's saying, there has to be improved behavior. So it's a good question that we need to ask ourselves. Do we, do we behave better than the world? Do we live holier than the world? Not that we're holier than the world, but do we live holier than the world? And, and we should be holier than the world, but not like holier than thou attitude. Do we treat our enemies better than the world treats its enemies? If we love our enemies, we'll truly behave superior to the world. If we're only kind to those that, 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 that we love, or to only those that love us, we're no better than the worst of sinners because they do the very same thing. We are to be different. We're to be Christ-like. The Father loves His enemies. He wants to make them His children. We should do all that we can and the best that we can to help the Father make them His children. And it's a really sad thing today when the Christian doesn't live any better, any higher than the world. And when the world can't tell any difference between the the world and the Christians. And what's even worse, it's a disgrace to our God 
when, who, when those who say they're Christians talk, smell, and behave like the world. And sometimes it's hard to tell the difference today. We need more possessors of faith than less professors of faith. The Christian is a man or a woman who is different than others because he or she does more than they do. Verse 48 in closing. Therefore, the therefore takes us back to all that's just been been said before this. Therefore, as a result of the previous verses, you shall be perfect just as your father in heaven is perfect. The meaning here means perfection in virtue and integrity. uh, Thayer's Greek lexicon says that the word perfect means that which is perfect. That is consummate, absolute human integrity and virtue. The word perfect doesn't mean sinless perfection. And it's obvious that no one has arrived because that's impossible in this life. In this sin-stained body, even though it's a good goal to strive for, again, we, we can't live a perfect sinless life. It is a goal to strive for. It suggests a completeness, a maturity as being the sons and daughters of God. Perfection is the goal. That's what we're shooting for. God is our model. He's our standard. We're to act like Him. All our behavior is to be compared to His holiness when we judge the quality and the character of them. Now, you may look at yourself in comparison to the world and think, I look good. I'm a good person. But how do you look when you compare yourself to God? I'll finish with what Paul said in Philippians 3, 12 and 14. Paul says, I don't mean to say that I have already achieved these things or that I have already reached perfection. But I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it. But I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and I receive the, and to receive the heavenly prize for which God through Christ Jesus is calling me. Paul wrote this at the end of his life. He said at the end of all of his life, I haven't achieved these goals yet. I am not yet perfected. I am not yet mature, but I'm, stra- I'm, I'm, I'm reaching for the prize. I, I'm, I'm, I'm reaching for that goal. He says, I forget those things from the past. Because when you hold on to the things of the past, it will keep you from a blessed future. Those things just weigh us down and get in the way. And again, Paul wrote this at the end of his life. We're not going to attain it in this life, in this body. But it's to be our goal. Reaching for the prizes, Paul said, the prize of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this, again, this beautiful lesson on loving our enemies, God. And Lord, may we, <clears throat> may we take it to heart, Father. Lord, may we lean upon you, Lord. May we, may we trust in you, Lord to get us through, to help us to love, Father, as you love me, as you loved us, Lord. And Father, only in the power of the Holy Spirit 
can I do what Jesus said here? Jesus said in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. And that's so right on. Apart from Christ, I have no power. I don't even have a desire. I have no strength. I have no direction. Lord, help us to reconnect with you, God. Help us to do (coughs) what we need to do. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And you want to love others as He loved us, as He loves you. And again, Jesus didn't just say that He loved us. He demonstrated it on that cross on Calvary. The cross says, I love you. The worship team is going to lead us in a time of worship. And if God's word is spoken to you, if the Holy Spirit has touched your heart this morning, then as we worship, if you want to receive Christ, you get up out of your seat, make your way towards the steps up front. I'll meet you there. When the song's over, we'll pray together a simple prayer of faith.